All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 103, Psalm 103. Uh, This is a uh, Psalm of David, and uh, we spent a lot of time in the last few months going over his life. And uh, this morning, I want us to look at one of the Psalms that David penned. Uh, Probably most of these Psalms are written later in David's life as he would reflect upon various and specific circumstances. Uh, that he was facing. So I want to begin reading in verse 1 of Psalm 103, if you would read with me. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great. It's his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is a great psalm. I uh, have looked forward to uh, sharing the truth that is uh, captured in this text so beautifully for us. One year ago, my brother-in-law, his name is Doug Hartzell, uh, was diagnosed with small cell bladder cancer, which is uh, of... Bladder cancer is the more uh, dangerous type to uh, get. He was put into contact, and I can't remember how he was put into contact with this doctor, but it was at Fox Chase Cancer Center down in Philadelphia. He met a doctor named Dr. Smaldone. Great guy, talented surgeon. Uh, my, uh, my brother and in-law and sister have to come to a conclusion after working with this guy. This, this doctor gives you his phone number. He, he begs you to text him, call him, email him. Just wide open life. And a very uh, talented uh, operator in the operating room. Just very, very gifted. Uh, they're sure that he is the best doctor that they could have ever been given by God for this time and for this season in their life. Uh, And the reason for that is that Doug has experienced the blessing of the gifting that this gentleman has been given by God to effectively work and conduct surgery and do things like that. My sister is an individual who thinks out loud, okay? She is uh, a lot of fun to be around. if, If she's thinking it, she's saying it. It just comes out. And one of the things I've learned through this circumstance is that if my sister thinks that a doctor is the best doctor in the world, then every person she ever meets that has bladder cancer is going to Dr. Smaldone. In fact, she doesn't even know that there are other doctors who do bladder surgery. He's the kind of the one and only in her mind. Now, here's, here's one of the conclusions I've come to. I don't think my sister ever sat down and said to herself, you know, Dr. Smaldone is a really good doctor. He's a really effective surgeon. And I'm going to make a decision today to start telling people about how good and effective he is. Okay? I I have never entertained the notion that my sister sat down and convinced herself that she should tell people about what this doctor is capable of. 
What she did is she experienced through her husband's life the touch, the gifting, the sensitivity that this man has. And whenever his name comes up, I kind of walk out of the room because I've heard everything she's going to say. It just bubbles over this applause that naturally rises. And here's what I believe. I believe that my sister's enjoyment of that doctor's skills that have been effective in saving the life of her husband, I believe that those skills, that appreciation for her is made complete when she has an opportunity to share that with someone else. Do you follow what I'm saying? So she has this deep appreciation. It, she's full of it. And whenever she has an opportunity to share it, it just, it just flows out. And when it flows out, she lights up like a light bulb. It, it, there's a completing of adoration. There's a completing of appreciation that comes in the context of sharing that appreciation. And that's what I think I see happening in my sister's life. Well, in this psalm, I believe David is in a season of overflowing. Uh, David is thinking back on, I I don't know what specific circumstance, circumstance in his life. I know I can look at his life experience and find numerous times where the grace of God was overwhelming and abundant and brought deliverance into his life and dramatic and just incredible change. And I believe this is one of those seasons when David is, he just sits back and he, and he begins to rest in God and, and he, he cries out these words. I want to begin in verse 1. Some of your translations may say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Okay, and that's because the, the word in the original language is not the word praise, halal. It's a different word that talks about blessing someone. Here's the idea or difference between the word blessing God and praising God. Blessing means to endorse, to enrich the reputation of in such a way that it moves people to begin to trust in someone. So David's praise of God in this setting aims at causing others to trust in him and know him as a great savior in the same way that David has come to know God. It's driven by a deep resolve to make people aware of the benefits of knowing and laying hold of the promises of God. That's, that's what's driving David. So he says to himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. Talk about God. Well up with favor. And then he says, O my soul and all that is within me. The New Living Translation says it this way. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Bring before him wholehearted, full-souled blessing and praise and honor. This is what the psalmist is experiencing. And then he he makes an interesting statement in the second part of verse 2. He says, praise him and do not forget all his benefits. I don't know if you're like me. I suspect that many of you probably are in some ways. I know you don't want to be compared to me, but in some ways you may be like me. I have a tendency to forget Uh, often good things. Uh, A tendency to become ungrateful because I get caught up in the circumstances of my life, caught up in my problems, my troubles, or my blessings. And I forget to, to be a person who is giving thanks to God wholeheartedly and with my whole life. The text here says, don't forget his benefits. And commentators say this about this word. They say it's not a slip of memory that David cautions us against, but instead it is a deliberate ignoring by replacing with lesser things. All right, do you ever find yourself doing that? 
in a life that should be full of the glory and joy of God, I sometimes find myself captured by less important things. All those lesser things are idols. They're kind of what Marie was praying about. They're things that threaten to take the place of God in my life. And the problem with that is there is nothing outside of God that can bring full and pure satisfaction into my life. So whenever I grab at things to try to find joy or pleasure or satisfaction, here's the thing I need to remind myself of. All of those things are limited and finite in their effect. And the God that I walk away from or turn from in that moment or exchange for is the God who is eternal and capable of satisfying fully every one of my needs. So the psalmist then goes into a brief list. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a brief list of the benefits that God is pouring out into his life. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, don't forget his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. That's talking about a, a total correction of our lives. All of the effects of fallenness and sin in us, in sickness and in sinful behavior and brokenness. All of that. David knows is going to be eradicated by the incredible power of God. He forgives and he heals. And secondly, David says this. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. This is a beautiful statement, isn't it? He pulls you out of that pit of despair that we often fall into. And he crowns you with loving kindness. He says, you're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I am giving to you favor and position through the work of Jesus. And the psalmist says, don't, oh my soul, don't forget that. And then verse 5. He satisfies your desires with good things. So that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. You know, there are so many things that we try to shove into our lives to find satisfaction. There's so many damaging habits that we fall into. Uh, and, and, and you could go down a whole list of, of sexual, of, of food-driven, of money-driven, all kinds of things that we, we from time to time think, well, I'm not happy, I'm not content right now, I'll try this, I'll try this, I'll try this. And what do we find? Only Jesus truly satisfies and what the psalmist is, is kind of driving us to do is think about God and meditate on God and his goodness to you until it begins to overflow in praise from your life. Because here's what happens. The more I think about the blessings of God in my life, it, 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 it will have the effect of weakening temptation and encouraging praise and honor and glory towards God. So the psalmist says, don't forget. Why? Because these truths, this summary list that is representative, not exhaustive, but these types of truths about God fuel delight. They fuel praise. They drive amazement. These promises contain truths that David knew, experienced, and as a result of that experience, he treasured them. They were precious to him. So when David, in this context, thinks about God, he thinks about this, this completeness of joy and satisfaction and pleasure in and through the work of God in his life. I think David's aim in this psalm is to prompt enjoyment of God by reminding us of reasons to praise, okay? He's, he wants to prompt joy and, and, and treasuring God in our life by giving us three reasons. I'm just going to break this text down. Uh, won't go through it in, in utter detail, but I want you to think of three directions that David is going to point to help us to praise 
the Lord in a way that becomes transformational in and to our lives. So number one is this, in verse 6. It says, he works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. And I think the first thing that David is doing is he, he, he's, he's going to talk about a historical act of rescue, the primary act of rescue in the Old Testament. If you were to read through the Old Testament story and, what do you, and say, what do you think is the most dramatic act of rescue, the, the most grand demonstration of God's power in bringing deliverance into people's lives? The first thing that would come to mind is the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. We call it the Exodus. There's a, a, the second book of the Old Testament is named after that event. And it's that event that God uses Moses in to bring deliverance to his people. And so I think what David would say is this. If you're wrestling with understanding the goodness of God, remember his compassion in the history of the nation of Israel. And also he talks about how he made his ways known to Moses. Remember how God worked forgiveness for rebels like the Israelites in, 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 in the wilderness when they struggled and they built the, the gold calf and they fell down and worshipped an idol and God had to bring judgment against them, but later he brings great favor. In Exodus, the Israelites were slaves and the psalmist is remembering God delivered his people out of bondage and brought them into a new relationship with himself. In verse 9, David talks about a very specific circumstance that Israel faced in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 34. Remember the story of the golden calf, right, at Mount Horeb, where Israel, uh, as, as Moses is up on the mountain, they make a calf and they begin to bow down, and everything about their heart begins to turn away from God. And Moses, in his, in his frustration of what's going on with Israel, cries out to God, and he says, God, I need to see you. I need you to show me something of your glory. Show me something of your power. I need a manifestation of your presence. And God, in his grace, invites Moses to come up onto the mountain where he will experience the very powerful and glorious presence of God. And the Bible tells us that, that, that God is going to pass before Moses and, and allow him to see the hinder part of his glory, kind of a, a, a faint reflection of it. And as God passes by Moses, God intones, God speaks to Moses. Here's what he says. As Moses reflects on the sinfulness of the people of Israel, God says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve Repay us according to our iniquities. I, I love how David, as he praises God, reflects on this historic act of God's grace. Where, as, as we see the, the, the deep and profound sinfulness of Israel, we also gain a glimpse into the grace and mercy of God that is revealed in this moment to Moses. What is God saying to Moses? I am with you. I will not fail you. I am gracious and compassionate and just. That's part of the picture. But the main emphasis of this text is that God desires to show rich and abundant favor to Israel and to Moses in spite of their sinfulness. Folks, that's the grace of God. 
He works with broken people. He restores broken people. So the first reason we should praise the Lord is by remembering this historical act of rescue for Israel. Secondly, verses 11 and 12. It's a text that talks about, in a further detail, this forgiveness that God brings. Verse 11 says this. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And I want you to, just in your note, would you just mark with me the words, those who fear him. Okay, just tuck that away in your mind for a little while. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, as David is reflecting and writing out of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he is helping us to understand something of the the way of God's work in forgiveness, the, 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 the grandeur of God's forgiveness, the, the, the immeasurableness of God's forgiveness. So I want, you, I want you to think about what this text says. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love. His, and that word is his loyal love, his covenant commitment to Israel. So how far are the heavens above the earth? You ever thought about that? went and did a little bit of research. They asked this question on Google. I said, what is the farthest galaxy that's known at this time? Okay? The farthest galaxy that's known, I think, if I remember the date correctly, it was discovered in 2011. It was take, a picture of it was taken by the Hubble telescope. And here's what was learned. That galaxy is 13.3 billion light years away from planet Earth. Now, God knew that. I didn't know that. We didn't know that until we had a telescope that could reach that far. But think about that. I mean, I thought about it for a second. I said, okay, that's out of my league. I, I, I just, I don't. But what is David saying? David's saying God's loyalty, his commitment is, is immeasurable. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is towards those who fear him. It's, it's overwhelming. And I think it's what David wants us to feel. Not that God is a permissive grandfather, but that he is a father who loves us in a way that is incalculable and immeasurable. And and he loves me in such a way that I can barely appreciate and grasp it. And so what do I do? I, I should simply stand back in amazement. Right? And that's what we sing that song, don't we? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. But can I say that we often get used to the words while the truth is overwhelming and immeasurable and limitless. That's what David wants them to know. David wants them to know that, that in the midst of, of your sinfulness, as you read this psalm, there is a God who loves you, who is for you, who is working favor in, in your direction. And if you are someone who walks with him in loyal love as well, he'll never let go of that covenant with you. In verse 12, he says this, As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now here's what's interesting. He doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Right? If I had a globe and I had one sitting on my counter home, I was going to bring it and put it right here. Okay? If I, if I was to have a globe and I said, I'm going to show you how far the north is from the south, I can actually demonstrate that to you. Right? Because if I start in New Jersey and work my way north on the globe, I'm going to come to... Uh, one of the, either the, the Arctic Circle, right? I'm going to come to, the, to the, a point on the globe where I begin to go south. 
So north-south, as far as the north is from the south, just wouldn't work as an illustration. So what does the psalmist say? As far as the east is from the west, here's the picture. If I start in New Jersey and start traveling west, pretty soon I'm going to get wet, right? Then I'm going to land again and then wet again and then land again and, and go around. And I'll never come to a point where I find the west by going east. Why? Because they don't intersect with each other. And what the psalmist is saying is, God has moved your sin an immeasurable distance away from you. And remember how gracious and large and massive and incomprehensible this grace of God is. Now, let me give one other thought for clarification. I don't think that David intended for us to look at a picture from the Hubble telescope and determine how far it actually is. In other words, I don't think this text is asking us to measure God's love. I think it's asking us to treasure God's love, to be amazed by it. That's why David is using immeasurable and incomprehensible pictures. He wants us to look at God's grace, God's favor, God's love, God's mercy, his forgiveness, and stand back and say, God is incredible. And gracious to everyone who will trust in him. How do we know this most clearly? Well, Romans 8 verses 32 to 34 say this. They say, who can bring a charge against God's children? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Folks, here's what I want you to understand this morning. As a Christian, I can own my sin. I can freely acknowledge it. Why? Because God has drawn me into a relationship where he is committed to loving and forgiving and cherishing me. And I can tell you this. I'm no prize. God didn't look at the people of Israel and say, there is, there's a group of people that would be great to have as my people. Right? There wasn't anything attractive about them. If you read through the book of Exodus, here's what you'll find. God says to Israel, I chose you because I loved you. And that's it. And there's no further explanation except that God had set his love on that people group through whom his Messiah would come. God's love is the explanation for the status of his people. And that is true for you and I. My position before God is not based on how well I live. It's based upon the abundant grace of God that is limitless and unmeasurable and fully unknowable, that is poured out into our lives and that changes our eternal destiny by His grace and for His glory. On the cross, Jesus Christ decisively dealt with my sin in its entirety. So that I, by the grace of God, not by my works, not by my performance, not by my effort, but by the grace of God, gratis, as a gift, could be freely and beautifully and powerfully forgiven. In Psalm 32, David said this. He said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. I want you to think about that. David says the the blessed man who blesses God is the one whose sin has been canceled. It's been removed. 
and he is brought back into a favorable relationship with God and with his brothers and sisters in Christ. David says this. He says, I acknowledge my sin. I simply owned it before God in transparency. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Here's what God has done in Christ. And according to this text, he has removed our sin so far that you cannot see it anymore. And here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. You know, many people wrestle with guilt. They live with regret over past decisions and past actions and past choices, and they become a prison that captures. I want you to know this morning that there is no benefit in terms of forgiveness in reflecting on past failures. None. None. I've been saying to people recently, if God forgives like that, then I need to take down the rearview mirror in my life. We are so often captivated by what is behind us. We're looking in that mirror that cultivates condemnation and guilt and fear and dread. If you've come under the power and grace of the blood of Christ, here's what I want to tell you to do. Take down the rearview mirror. Paul said this, I forget what is behind me and I look forward to what is before me. What's before me? The immeasurable, incomparable, unending, limitless love and grace of God. And that is most clearly displayed where? On the cross of Christ. Where an eternal work of redemption and forgiveness was completed for us as God's children. Take down that rearview mirror by which you focus on regret and experience freedom and victory that comes through Jesus Christ, freedom from guilt and condemnation. Let it go. Let the grace of God rise in your life. The last uh, picture. So you have this issue of the historical forgiveness of Israel, that, that historical act of grace. And then you have this, this, these, these pictures of the immeasurableness of God's uh, work in favor. The last thing I want you to see in verse 13 is the limitlessness of God's affection. I want you to notice what David says now. And as I think of this text, I think David is an adult writing this, reflecting on God's grace in his life. Here's what he says. As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we have formed, and he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. Now, when you read through that, you start to get a picture of something that is in contrast to what came before it, right? We find the love of God, it endures. The grace of God is limitless. It's ever present. It's always there. It's always effective. It's always available. This text leans towards the picture of the affection of God. David says, like a father has compassion. I want to I give a qualifier as I say this. Because I know for many of you, you grew up with an imperfect dad. Every one of my daughters did. They grew up with an imperfect dad. Sometimes the imperfections of dad are pronounced. And I know... Some of you personally in the context of this church family who uh, experience things that are unspeakable and horrific. So when this text says, like a father has compassion on his son, you may be saying, I need some help to understand that. 
because I never experienced that. And here's what I want you to know. God is talking about the normative or ideal relationship that should exist apart from our sinfulness in the relationship between a father and son. And he says, like a father has compassion on a son. Here's what I think that means. I think it simply means this. The naturally occurring affections apart from sin. Okay? The naturally occurring affections apart from brokenness and sin. Okay? And David wants you to think about that. I got a, a, a video from my, uh, my daughter a couple days, or actually it was yesterday. Her, her husband is a uh, Coast Guard in the pilot in Houston, uh, Coast Guard pilot in Houston, flies helicopter. And they're moving to Atlantic City, so they let, on your last tour, they let you kind of go do a flyover and fly by your house and wave to your wife and kids. So he called my daughter yesterday and said, hey, I'm five minutes out. Little Ava's sleeping. She's in, wakes her up, gets out on the front street. And uh, he comes flying by at 150 feet. Imagine what that would be like. For the people living there, Ava's, they're waving away, right? And her little, her hero is gone. Becca sends me a video about half an hour later. She said, watch this. All Ava's, she's strutting around the house. Here's what she's saying. It means in interpretation, daddy, where are you? Okay. Dada, are you? Looking out the window, Dada, are you? Where are you? And here, here's the thought that ran through my mind in that more innocent season of life when the child doesn't know that dad's not a hero and that dad's not perfect and that he makes mistakes. In that pure context and innocence of infancy, the question is naturally, where are you? And through that picture yesterday, as I'm studying this text, I get that video, and I'm thinking to myself, that's a powerful picture of without any brokenness in the relationship that early, with everything as it should be, there is something profoundly beautiful about a little infant drawn naturally to someone who was there to protect her, saying, Dada, where are you? And as David writes this, I think David is reflecting on this in his relationship to God. He understands that God is a gracious and loving and merciful father to him. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to know that as a, as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on those who love him. When I read this text, I thought about a story that I may have shared with you in the past which there are certain stories, if I share them, they're not very positive for my reputation uh, or how you see me, okay? So I understand that this story works in that way. But when I, when, I, when I read this, I thought about as a father has compassion, meaning a child in a, in a, where there's normal affections in the relationship, the child knows that dad can be trusted to care even in the midst of your stupidity. So when I was about eight years old, I was riding my bicycle. And one of the things we did, you guys remember the Stingray bicycles? 
right? The banana seat bike. Well, one of the cool things to do and stupid things to do was to take all the guards off, right? Because who cares about safety? I'm safe. <laughs> so I'm out with my brothers in the neighborhood with about four or five other friends riding around in front of the Geiger's house. We had, my friends, the Geiger's had a, had a, a this street was flat in front of them and it had about a 12 foot extension on it. So it was a nice place just to ride around. You could see long distances and you didn't have to worry about cars. And I, to this day, I don't know what got into me, but I was always fascinated by gadgetry and things that move. Somehow, I got my finger under the chain and went around the sprocket about one-third of the way. You want to talk about stupid. Okay? Now, how do you think my older brothers responded? It was very predictable. Okay? They unleashed everything on me they possibly could. I'm laying on the ground, holding up my bike, my hands halfway around. They want to pick my bike up and pedal the rest of the way around. And I'm like, I'm screaming. I'm open. My dad was home that day, which was a rare thing. Interesting. I am screaming as they're mocking me. You know why I'm screaming? I'm like, Dad, come and help me. The reason I'm doing that is because I knew that when my dad got there, the first thing he wouldn't say was, you are so stupid. But it was true. But I knew that wouldn't be his response. He came as my hero that day, brought his bolt cutters, cut the chain, got me out, took me to the doctor, got my finger fixed. And later he's like, what were you thinking? He said, he gave your brothers a beautiful opportunity to hammer you. I said, I know, I know. The reason I called out to my dad is I knew that he would care. And I knew he would work to deliver. Okay? That's why. Not that he wouldn't later rebuke me and say, please don't do that again. And so on and so forth. Dad, I'm going to say this to you this morning. God has chosen you to represent to your children your Father in heaven. He has given you an awesome privilege and a formidable task to let your children know what God is like. The best parenting model I can recommend to you is God himself. And for those of you that grew up in a a context where the picture was, was so desperately broken, here's what I want you to know this morning. I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who loves you who is merciful towards you, who is compassionate and has everlasting love for you. And the last thing that the psalmist points out in this text is a a fascinating picture, okay? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and remembers that we are dust. In other words, he takes into account who I am as he relates to me. He understands my weaknesses and my tendencies, and he still loves and chooses and works and saves. That's the amazing thing, okay? He's, he's, He's loving and working and moving, in spite of all the brokenness, in spite of all the stupidity that we express in our lives. He knows that we're like dust. He knows we're like grass. We're temporary. 
One of my favorite seasons of the year is the spring. I love seeing the buds come out on trees. But I always have this sadness to me when I look at blossoms on a tree, especially the crabapple trees by my house. I know it's like four days, and if it rains, it's like two days, and it's done. It's beautiful, but it's temporary. And what does God do in this text? He sets himself up in contrast to a human father who is temporary in every way, like blossoms, like grass, fading, temporary, not immeasurable, not limitless, because he wants us to trust him above all things. Verse 16 says, the wind blows over it, it's gone, and it remembers its place no more. Eventually, you won't even be able to tell it was ever there. No permanent effects. But he says in verse 17, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So as you work through this text, here's, here, there are two things I want to I make clear to you. Number one is this, that God is eternal. He's not like a fallen earthly father, weak and unpredictable. And secondly, he is everlasting. He is an everlasting God who never lets you down and who will never fail. And I think that's a beautiful gift that every dad gets to give to his children. And I think the thing that a dad and a mom, above all, want to remind their kids of, and the thing that I would like to remind all of us of this morning is this. Uh, But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those that fear him. Here's what we can say about God. God is... Right now you can say Tim Hoff is, but one day you will say Tim Hoff was. You know, every funeral I do, I have to reflect on a person's life, and I'm always speaking about them in the past tense. I will never talk about God in the past tense. So the Father who loves you, who forgives you, who protects you, is in fact eternal. Folks, that is why David, as he reflects on God's loving covenant with Israel, as he reflects on the height and the, and the depth of God's love, as he reflects on the limitlessness of God's compassion on his children, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget all his benefits. And this, this text is very powerful because it ends in verse 20 through 22 by just another rehearsing of the first three verses. He says, praise the Lord, you his angels. You mighty ones who do his bidding and obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly host. You his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. And then he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. And David means wholeheartedly from the very depths of my being. Let everything that I am praise the Lord. Now folks, here's the way that that happens best. And here's how that enjoyment of what you know about God is most supremely and beautifully captured. When I have an opportunity to talk to people about the goodness and grace of God, I'm explaining something, but I'm also finding a completing of the joy that I know in God, right? C.S. Lewis said something like that. He said, he said, in describing God's love to someone, I am coming to a completer appreciation and enjoyment of it by sharing it. Right, because it prompts excitement. It, 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 it brings joy. That's what's happening with my sister with Dr. Smaldone, right? Here's the guy that operated on my brother. 
great results. Praise God. My mom comes up with bladder cancer. My, my sister is certain. There is no other doctor to go to. And she takes my mom to Dr. Smalldone. My brother gets diagnosed with cancer. Guess what my sister says? You need to call Dr. Smalldone and get a referral from him. Why? And, and here's what's happening. Every time my daughter, my sister, has a chance to point to Dr. Smalldone, she she is experiencing a greater joy. Not, it, it's not a joy simply to be known. It's a joy to be shared. Think of, with me of going to a concert. A few months ago, we went to see the Piano Guys, which is a pianist and a cellist that play together. Very beautiful music. Very encouraging and uplifting. And here, here's, here's what I know. I would never go to that kind of concert alone. Okay? When I see something that's beautiful, I want to share it with someone. When there's something glorious that's being seen, you want to share it. And in the sharing of it is the completing of it, right? So we sat at the concert dutifully watching and applauding. And occasionally, I would look at my wife and say, that was pretty good. And in that sharing, what's happening? There's a a heightened sense because you're enjoying it together. It's like when there's a standing ovation at an event. You're enjoying more fully the praise because it is being done corporately together towards the object of your affection. That's what David's calling us to do in this text. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's within me. And he's encouraging us to come along with him to fully enjoy in a powerful way the presence and glory of God. This morning I give you this encouragement. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And don't forget all of his benefits. The one warning that emerges in this text, and I want to just point this out to you. Three times in this psalm, You will find David saying this, God blesses those who fear him and keep his covenant. Okay? Here's what I want you to know. The mercies of God are amazing, but they are not to be presumed upon. Okay? This idea of fearing him really leans toward, if you study this out, you'll find that it leans toward the idea of obedient faith. That there is a trust in God that is deeply affecting my personal life. There is an affection for God, an appreciation of the height and the width of his love and affection that is driving obedience in my life. And here's what I think will happen in your life. If you are struggling with a persistent sin in your life and you're, you're asking God to give you victory over it, one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do is bless the Lord oh my soul and enumerate his benefits because as I grow in praise as I grow in appreciation and worship of God, there will not be room for lesser gods. Does that make sense? It has, the Puritans called it an expulsatory effect. The more you treasure God, the less room there is for lesser treasures that fade and that rust and that corrupt. So David's encouragement to us is, come along, look at the glory of God, celebrate it, Think about his affection for you. If you think about his affection for you, his love for you, I found in my own life, there were times that I thought about what my dad would think about my behavior, and my behavior was altered by his affections. Does that make sense? Think about that. Think about your wife. Think about your kids. Think about your church family. Think about God. And those affections, as they're celebrated, will not leave room for lesser sinful things. And then a fear of the Lord will come because they realize how majestic and glorious and powerful he is. When God revealed to Moses that he was full of compassion, 
You know what God had to do? God had to hide him in the cleft of the rock to protect him from the power of the glory of God and his holiness. But as God walked by and hid him, he said, the Lord, full of compassion, grace, and truth. Let blessing the Lord, O my soul, so fill your life that there is no room for lesser things. Father, we thank you for your truth this morning. The psalm is indeed uh, glorious. It reminds us uh, powerfully of great truth about you. Lord, if someone's here this morning wrestling with sin, uh, something that has captivated that they haven't turned over to God in faith and obedience, Father, I, I pray this morning that they would meditate on truth about you, great, glorious, holy, loving, affectionate, faithful, true judge. And God, my prayer this morning would be that if you would point that out in someone's heart, you might give them courage, maybe to come up at the end of the service and say to one of the pastors, I need to pray. I want the love of God. I want the grace of God. I want the affection of God to drive sin out of my life. I want to be forgiven by the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, I would encourage you this morning. These blessings are available by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And if you've never trusted him, I would encourage you where you sit right now, just say, God, forgive me for my sin and wash me in your blood and make me your child today. I want to know you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Amen.